Welcome back to Read Succeed. I'm your host, Dave Campbell, here on your community radio station on 6.5 FM, WFMP LP Louisville. New year, new season, new episode, new genre, science fiction. Sarah Pensker's 2020 Nebula Award winner, A Song for a New Day, right after this. Stay tuned. Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Greetings to all Democracy Now! listeners on Pacifica Affiliate Forward Radio 106.5 FM, WFMP LP in Louisville, Kentucky. This grassroots community radio station relies on volunteer power and your financial support to continue broadcasting the progressive, national, and homegrown local programming you've come to expect from Forward Radio. At a time when our public airwaves are being gobbled up by corporate interests, here's an open mic dedicated to local voices, civic engagement, and community empowerment. Please go to forwardradio.org and pledge your generous support today. Thank you so much. Welcome to episode 16 of Read and Succeed, and Happy New Year. No time to waste reading and reviewing American sci-fi novelist Sarah Pensker's text, A Song for a New Day, winner of her second Nebula Award in 2020, and a tale about two young women, Miss Luce Cannon, Luce spelled L-U-C-E, and Miss Rosemary Laws, finding music, courage, humanity themselves, and ultimately each other, in the midst of a perpetual global lockdown brought on by, insert goosebumps, a global pandemic and its result in civil unrest, and, insert even more goosebumps, a text that eerily hit American shelves approximately 30 days before COVID-19 hit American shores in November of 2019. To discuss the novel today and to discuss the genre of science fiction in general, I've invited Mr. Joe Hardwick, graphic designer at GHD Graphics in Greater Lexington, Kentucky, science fiction enthusiast, old friend of mine, and for all intents and purposes, Read and Succeed's pro bono tech and web consultant. I know many of our audience members that don't read sci-fi have passed at least one of those interesting people in their community, carrying boxes into comic book shops, doing cosplay for comic conventions, or hanging out in front of theaters at midnight in the freezing cold whenever a new Star Wars movie comes out. And we are honored to have a member of that tribe on the show today to share their unique brand of creative genius, help review a song for a new day, and chat about the past, present, and future of what many consider to be one of the most defining or at least profitable literary genres of the modern era. You can learn more about Joe and GHD Graphics at ghdgraphics.com. You can learn more about Read and Succeed and find links to this interview on our social media sites at readandsucceed.net. And enjoy this interview. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Ladies and gentlemen, our next guest on Read and Succeed is Mr. Joe Hardwick. Joe grew up in several places during his childhood all over the southeastern United States. This allowed for an interest in experiencing different regions and people in his adult life. Joe is a 2003 graduate of the University of Kentucky with a BA in Art Studio and Graphic Design with an emphasis in Illustration. He reapplied to the Mechanical Engineering Department and pursued a degree in 2006. After several semesters, he decided to focus on his design career with an emphasis on pre-press and print production. After a varied career in wide and small format printing and management, he decided to launch his own graphic services company in 2018 called GHD Graphics, the GHD standing for Gearhead Design. 
He enjoys the varied projects the customers bring to his doorstep and is able to flex his illustration talents unlike any position before. When he isn't working, he enjoys spending time with his son, Joey, and his wife, Jennifer. Jennifer and Joe enjoy going on cross-country motorcycle trips as well as excursions to local racetracks to participate in track days. They both enjoy living in the slower pace of life in Winchester, Kentucky since 2015. Joe, welcome to Read and Succeed. Thank you, sir. So full disclosure, Joe and I are, are good friends. We go way back. It's funny that we're even now at the point in our life where we say we go way back because it seems like we just met each other last week, but that's actually been about six or seven years ago. Yeah. Uh, Joe and I met at the headquarters of my current employer at Jefferson Community and Technical College. Actually, the headquarters is the Kentucky Community and Technical College system in 2014, I think it was. Joe was working in the copy room for FedEx Kinko's at the time. I was starting my career, and the friendship was instantaneous. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think we um, had similar backgrounds and similar age and similar ideals. And one thing, I brought Joe on here because Read and Succeed is about finding the subject matter experts on things within your community. I, I always wanted people to understand that most of the knowledge that you probably need in your life, you can find it within your local community. And part of this show is being able to unearth that. And today we're going to be talking about science fiction and Song for a New Day, which was the 2020 Nebula Award winner for Best Novel, which is a very prestigious science fiction award. And if I wanted the audience to close their eyes and imagine who would be the kind of person I would go and seek out for all of the, some of the deepest knowledge of science fiction and comic books in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the, the DC Universe, et cetera, et cetera. If you close your eyes, it would probably be Joe Hardwick. Joe, do you agree with that statement? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, you've seen our discussions before. It gets, uh, it gets pretty deep. Yeah. Well, the one thing I'm, I'm going to ask you first, and I ask this to every single individual that comes on the show, from New York Times bestselling authors, Kentucky poet laureates, community college instructors, and that question is, is are you a reader, and where and when did that start? I believe that the answer would be is I'm a casual reader. It's probably going to start back when you, you start watching these movies and things that you start following and you hear that there's a book out that follows your favorite characters. Then you'll go out and you'll seek out the book and then you'll kind of go down that rabbit trail. And then all of a sudden, the authors of said books actually have books of their own and it branches out into that. I get recommendations every now and then from friends of mine who, once they understand your taste, they'll recommend something. I'm usually what I would call a commuting booker, which means that as I commute, I listen to audiobooks, and I find that my real interest comes from there. To give you an idea, the book that we read together is I did about half or so on an audiobook, and then I would pick up the book when I didn't have the audiobook available and do kind of a hybridized version of that. But compared to, say, everybody that you mentioned and even my wife, I am a very casual reader. Well, one thing you mentioned about, and this relates to the conversation we're going to have about science fiction, and you were saying about novelizations of movies. Mm -hmm. One of the great science fiction franchises of the 20th century, and one of the great authors, I'm going to mention a quote from him here in a minute, but Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote the screenplay and basically the themes for 2001 A Space Odyssey, mm -hmm. directed yeah. by Stanley Kubrick in the late 60s. The novelization for 2001 came after the movie was produced, as was the novelization for Star Wars, yes. you know, and Star Trek is another example. So you have these cinematic and television franchises, you know, writing screenplays, creating content, and then doing novelizations. That is very unique to the science fiction genre itself. Right. I think the spread of media for science fiction is vast by comparison because of the way that we consume it. 
the way I would have consumed some of this stuff back when I was 15 has absolutely no bearing on how I consume it at the age of 41. And that's the one thing I really would like a lot of people to take away is that there's hundreds of ways to consume science fiction if you can get into it. And there's so many flavors that it's hard to not find something that you don't like. True, true. And one last question about your reading. Were you a frequenter of libraries in in your youth? Yeah, yeah, actually I was. My mom would take me to several libraries. I, I grew up in the panhandle of Florida, the southern part of Georgia, and the libraries were kind of a nice little retreat. They were built during, I think, the 60s or so. Yeah. And I really enjoyed going in there and finding the young adventure novels. I don't know if you guys remember those, but the, like the choose your own adventure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, that was that was an interesting concept to me because I was like, what, what are you talking about? You could choose your own adventure. And, and I was able to really enjoy those little, you know, figure out which path was one yeah. you would fall into the pit and the next you would make it out fine. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And you could read those books three or four <laughs> or five different times. To, oh, yeah. man, thank you for bringing that back. I thought I had forgot about the choose your own adventure books. <laughs> but, you know, that leads into my dad was, uh, I think I was probably 11 or 12 when John Grisham really started hitting big. Yeah, the firm. Oh, my gosh. And we had a trip because we lived in Florida. We would make these 12-hour trips back home to see my grandparents in Somerset. And on one of them, my dad just tossed me a book in the back and he said, you might enjoy that because it's kind of take place where we live now. And it was The Firm. And I remember finishing The Firm. And because of that, I thought, man, I, I, you know, I cracked this book to which I had never read a book like that before. And the next one, my dad said, said, if you really enjoyed that uh, and you want to try something with a little more adventure, you ought to try this one called Jurassic Park. Boom. That's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to ask you if you read Michael Crichton or not. Well, Jurassic Park was out at the library because they were starting to film the movie and they got a lot of acclaim. So I picked up Congo. Yeah. And I absolutely ate it up. I remember Congo. It's Fear, Jurassic and Park. Yeah. Fear it- was right after that. Yep. I kind of went down that that line, and I think that's probably where a lot of my tastes came from, because suddenly I read a book that was about being chased, and then you had all this legal stuff. And then the next one that you would have, it was pure science fiction in a way. Yeah. And I didn't know the difference between the genre. I just knew I really enjoyed it. And then my mom would collect these leather-bound editions of Agatha Christie. So she would cough up a Hercule Poirot, um, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, Miss Marple. I would get two or three of those and she would let me read those. And keep in mind, I'm only like 12 or 13 at the time. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just picking stuff that my parents like. Yeah. It wasn't until I got out of college that I really started reading things that really impressed me. The weird one that got me the strangest looks was Pride and Prejudice, the one that you're required to read in high school. I enjoyed that one immensely. You know, there's no, I mean, there's nothing, Yeah, I, you know, Joe and I are obviously two dudes. If you, if you, uh, you, can, <laughs> you, you, you can go look at the Regency website and see, uh, you know, my picture. And obviously that I'm a dude and, and, and as is Joe, two males, Joe and I are both two males, two white males, but no, there's nothing like Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid Tales. Mm-hmm. For me, is one of the most electrifying books I've ever read. It, it compl- it's completely dismantling white patriarchy, white Anglo-Saxon patriarchy, right before my eyes. But it's so electrically written, I, I have I can't help but admire it and enjoy reading it. Oh, um, absolutely! I read that yeah. twice. You know, the first science fiction book I ever read, and I read it, and then I watched the movie of it. it was an old movie. Was when I was again, I was twelve or thirteen, and it was given to me by my father. 
and it was the Andromeda strain. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. And yeah, by Michael Crichton. It, it was yes. one, his first, one of his first novels. And one of the things about science fiction, and this was something that we talked about on my last episode of Read and Succeed about Dickens with Dr. Diane Calhoun French, the vice president for academic affairs at Jefferson Community and Technical College, and the idea of arguments and knowledge being cloaked within fiction. Mm-hmm. I left reading The Andromeda Strain at 12 or 13, and I, and I think any 12 or 13-year-old could understand what's going on within that book. And I still have an understanding of microbiology and uh, public health and conversations about extraterrestrial life from the Andromeda strain from reading it once and watching the movie once that has lasted for 30 years at this point. I think I I didn't know anything about the movie. You know, the book is so thin. I think it's one of his first. And I picked it up and it was during the Congo, Jurassic Park era. And I crashed right through it. And then my mom said, by the way, you know, that's a movie. And it's coming on. She had a a TV schedule. Kids, they don't have those anymore. Or if they do, (laughs) they're all digital. Yeah, yeah. And we stayed up and watched it. And I was really surprised at how it was interpreted. Yeah. Because what I read was not what was on screen. And uh, I quickly learned, uh, especially since uh, Jurassic Park was so good. And then in my late teens, uh, as you know, David, Sphere and Congo came out. Yeah. And uh, tore the heart of any person who has read a novelization and had it turned into a movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Congo was, uh, that, yeah, I, I had actually read, I never saw Sphere, but I read Congo before I went and saw it in the movie. And I mean, that was the the Crichton era. Right. Uh, I mean, Jurassic Park was so humongous. I don't think people quite understand now that you have no idea what seeing Jurassic Park in the theaters at the time when you're 10 years old. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and even reading the book, but both of those, that, that era in the early 90s, the special effects within Jurassic Park, the themes, the uh, warnings and the messages uh, has stood the test of time, unlike m- many other franchises. Yeah, actually, I think they speak more today than they did in, you know, when did it come out, 92, 93? Yeah. And then the book came out in the 80s, I think. Yeah. Those messages resonate now to the point that you can draw direct comparisons to how things are handled. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Well, Joe and I are naturally in this conversation already starting to lead into my second question. And it was before we actually get to talking about the text, A Song for a New Day, which was published in 2019 by Sarah Pinsker. I wanted us to actually sort of frame for the audience a kind of a starting point, or at least our own personal opinions about a starting point for actually understanding science fiction itself. The themes in science fiction have been around throughout all of human history. Um, I mean, you can go back to some elements of some Greek tragedies, Aristophanes, and some of the playwrights in there's kind of a proto-science fiction there. But for all intents and purposes, most people consider it a very distinctly modern genre. Arthur C. Clarke, an individual which I've already mentioned, he's a British Sri Lankan science fiction author, considered one of the greatest of the 20th century, made a quote at the beginning of his short story collection. He was trying to explain for the reader what he himself believes how to define science fiction. And he defined it against science fantasy or fantasy in general. And he said, science fiction is something that could happen. Usually you wouldn't want it to. Fantasy is something that couldn't happen, though you often wish that it could. What's your response to that quote, Joe? 
I, th- I think that goes a little farther than the quotes that I've heard in the past. I really like it when people boil concepts down to something that's really digestible and, and you get kind of into a dangerous position when you do that. But the science fiction is bolts and plating and fantasy is woods and nature. So one deals with mechanisms and one deals with kind of like the man versus nature. Okay. I feel that that's a really good description, especially from a man that has written about it. And um, frankly, a lot of it has come true. For so many years, I would think about the things that I had read. And today, if I was to show myself at 12 or 11, the stuff that we deal with on a daily basis, especially now, he would have his mind blown. I literally have a handheld computer that I carry with me everywhere I go. I said Arthur C. Clarke would have his mind blown. Me and him. How many of the things that he talked about in the 2001 franchise and some of his other franchises actually came true? Well, I mean, if you really want to put it forward, I mean, we're already seeing, I think the trouble was that we didn't privatize space quick enough Hmm. because if we had 1969 would have happened, you know, those things that he showed in was it 68, 69 in the movie were already there. Change Pan Am for SpaceX. NASA's paying instead of paying another government to ship stuff. Literally, we have the most expensive UPS in the world. If you think about it, those items are there. The only difference is we just got to make them safe for people to happen and if you suddenly start putting destinations for people to go it would have been equivalent to a man from london who is independently wealthy going to the new world just because he could and that's what happens that era of science fiction becoming real is nuts i think the fact that again i go back to the star trek level of tech that i'm carrying with me at all times no longer will i have to ever worry about having full communication as long as I've connected digitally. Wireless communication, yeah. The touchscreen pads, something that my son takes for granted, I would have died for at his age. What about Alexa? Uh, The personal assistants, the series, the Alexas. I don't know, that's the one that kind of creeps me out. You know, good morning, Dave. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Al. Yeah, uh, I can't get that out of my head. And I personally do not have what I would consider a higher connected piece, so an Alexa. My Siri is on, and I do appreciate the new iOS that they have actually shows when something is listening to you. It's part of the new technology that I think is probably going to be required going forward because I just assume that I'm being recorded at all times. Yeah, which Um, opens up a whole other level of conversations within science fiction and society in general. Right. And that kind of way of thinking and the way that life is today is completely different than what I thought it would be. Back to this comment that you made, you were, you were making comparisons between science fiction and fantasy and mm-hmm. the science aspect of science fiction. Do you think that science fiction needs to be grounded in what's known as the scientific method or current understandings of parameters of physics and technology and engineering? Like magic. Do you think that the natural and the supernatural can work together within a science fiction novel? Or yeah, science- I think you're absolutely fine to play with those concepts together. They could live in the same universe. I think that we have different levels at which we could attribute how we handle the way we look at science fiction and science based in what we would call hard science fiction. Yeah. I always go back to, and it's one of my favorite novels, period. I, I mean, I've listened to this thing countless times. I've read it countless times and I never get tired of it. And that's uh, The Martian. Oh yeah. Hard science. 
Very hard song. And I mean, that man by Andy Weir. Yeah, the Andy Marshall Weir. Andy, yep. And that piece of work, I think, is probably the best example of hard science fiction you're going to get. But I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. That's the that's the of of you know we'll talk about the spectrum between hard science fiction and soft science fiction in a minute. But of all of the pure science fiction novels that I've ever ever read, I would say that The Martian was the was the, the hardest science of all of them. Mm-hmm. And I would say the movie Interstellar was in terms of a movie of a screenplay by Christopher Nolan was probably the, of the hardest of all science fiction. You know, Apollo 13 is nonfiction. Right. Interstellar was fiction, but it did everything it could to not only operate within the realms of physics, but also educate the viewer on these things for the first time. Well, to make I'll, them digestible, I'll, we'll do a layman. Right. You and I grew up on a time when space travel was the way of getting around. And that was something that we could easily understand that, okay, once you get faster than light travel, then many things open up. And, and of course, yeah, Klingons are just down the road and Vulcans are just down the road. But when you're talking about gravity affecting you to the point that if you just stand close enough to a large enough gravimetric field, the gravity waves will affect you to the point that it will bend not only space, but time. Yeah. That was a concept I thought I had a good grasp on until watching that movie. Afterwards, I got a better grasp on it. It was something as simple as, why does Gargantua have the way it's shaped? That has that kind of a funky shape to it with the halo going across the top. Because of the light refraction, you know, because yes. of this, the, the, the bending of space-time, which was proven right. not a couple of years after that movie came out by when right. they uh, photographed that black hole. It was the exa- exactly as predicted. And again, you know, we had a computer model that stated how it would look. Yeah. But to sit down and talk or concept stuff like that and going forward, I think something like Annihilation, the book and the movie, breaks into a new area where it's completely different to the way I would think. I'm always about space. But what about dimension? And that's where I'm having a tough time getting into new, because I mean, I could lay down the space thing pretty easy. Han Solo pulls back on the stick, him and Chewie go faster than light, we're off. But this concept that technically you don't go anywhere, but the dimension can change around you. Mm. Yeah, that's the one I'm still trying to get around. Well, you're moving beyond third and fourth dimensions into fifth and sixth. And and for everyone listening, there are serious, credible uh, scientific papers by astrophysicists and theorists about dimensions beyond the third and the fourth. We live in the third dimension. Right. Uh, your fourth dimension is where we're going to be at in time. And then there's you go beyond that, and it gets really, really complex. I can remember reading uh, Scientific America and Popular Science, and there's credible mathematical theories bringing it up to the 10th dimension at this point. Right. And I think there's a limit to the human thought process that takes it to the 10th. And then I think we're kind of stuck. We don't have a way to get beyond that. Even though there's a chance for infinite, we don't know of a way to create that. We just don't have the brain power to get there. And that's okay. I mean, I'll be honest with you. The idea of these dimensions, it kind of scares me more than being stuck in the space. Because I can kind of understand being stuck into space. Yeah. It's a journey to which anybody that's ridden down a lonely road and thought, man, if I break down on this road, I haven't seen anybody for like 30 minutes. That's a real concept that you could understand. I don't know what it would be like. Say, what if you got stuck in between the fourth and fifth dimension and no one could ever find you again? What was the name that you said, Annihilation? Was that a book or a movie? The both. Okay. Both. 
it's about a field that has literally changed the environment on Earth. And this field doesn't affect us immediately, but as you walk through it, it alters the physicality of our world into something that's completely different. Mm. So they talk about, uh, you know, like like a deer could be made out of diamonds or um, I think uh, the trees are made out of something completely different. And the concept is that that section is being redefined into another dimension okay, or cool. maybe another alien environment. It's not really explained 100%. Wow. It's almost like, uh, what's it, the Lovecraft, kind of like the oh, yeah. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft was American science fiction, right? But actually, co- cosmic, uh, he even went beyond science fiction and this idea of, of this cosmic threat. Yes. Threats that are so big, they're almost undefinable and unspeakable, which definitely, I think, you know, in- interdimensional conflicts would definitely qualify as that. But yeah. the, the, the idea of, of massive things, whether they're scientific or they're social, that are just so big that you cannot respond rationally to them you can only respond emotionally of fear and and your lack of understanding and that accurately describes how i feel about the dimensionality that accurately covers it one last thing and we'll we'll use this kind of transition into our review or our conversation on a song for a new day but you mentioned this whole idea of hard science fiction and soft science fiction. I think a lot of modern science fiction, we can see that kind of crystallizing with Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, right. The Time Machine, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, War of the Worlds, late 19th century at this point, early 20th century. Then you have the pulps, which come out in the 20s and 30s. And right. the, these were the old like astounding stories, uh, analog. These developed around laboratories like Bell Labs up in New Jersey. And you, you had all these extremely intelligent American and British and German scientists creating much of the modern world, you know, new, uh, atomic weapons, the nuclear program, new energy systems, the space program. And around them, their ideas were getting pumped into these very cheap, very quickly produced serial magazines, basically the, the early comics. There was a fusion of detective stories in them. There was a fusion of what would later become comics. There was hard science. There was social issues that were being talked about in these things. But they had no real credibility as yet within American society. They were basically kind of a cottage industry, sort of a fringe genre within literature. It should also be noted that during the 30s and the 40s was when J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis began writing as well. Right. And uh, I'm doing a private review of the Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis right now oh, wow. D- during January for Science Fiction Month. Uh, it, Joe knows I, I run a, I run my own private uh, book reviews called Friday Reads. It's on Facebook, uh, not affiliated with Read and Succeed, but uh, we'll be doing all three of C.S. Lewis's The Space Trilogy books this month. I would definitely consider The Space Trilogy to be science fiction. Yes. Uh, I would definitely consider J.R. Tolkien, obviously, to be fantasy. They're reaching international credibility with their genre over in Britain, the same time all in the United States. The Pulps are being printed. Now, in the 50s, you start seeing three figures rise up within American society that take the concepts from what were the early American pulps in the 30s and 40s to international claim. First is Isaac Asimov, right. a, a name that even if you've never read Isaac Asimov, you've heard that name before. And the most famous of all Isaac Asimov's books would probably be iRobot, the robot series. Second is Robert Heinlein. The most famous of his would be Starship Troopers and Stranger in a Strange Land. And the third would be Arthur C. Clarke, as we mentioned, with the 2001 franchise in the late 60s. These guys became novelists. Their works went from serials to full-blown novels. 
and entered into the mainstream of American consciousness. With Asimov, you have the Galactic Empire. With Robert Heinlein, you've got sort of the political aspects of science fiction and how new scientific developments alter society and how we think about society. And then with Arthur C. Clarke, you've got the philosophical aspects. How does the universe metaphysically respond to humanity's decision to start exploring it? All of that gets consolidated in Dune by Frank Herbert. We just did an episode on Unread Succeed. And all the themes in that get lifted into the greatest space opera of all time, which is Star Wars. So now within basically a 30-year period, American science fiction and science fantasy goes from cheap paperback pulps that are read by 12 and 13 year old teenagers back in the 30s and 40s and some laboratory scientists to multi-billion dollar blockbusters that they are today. The hard science fiction, I would say, would be Asimov. Mm -hmm. And like I said, later Andy Weir, but Asimov is always operating within the confines of science, of mathematics, of logic. Heinlein, I would consider him to be more the soft side of science fiction. Right. How does science affect social and political relationships. Not that there's not politics or political application within Asimov, but definitely within Heinlein. I think that Arthur C. Clarke operates a little bit of both. Astro he splits them. He splits them. I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that because with Arthur C. Clarke, there's always this like, how do I philosophically interpret space exploration? I think that's what it always went down to. But all of his space exploration always operates within what were current understandings of physics at the time. One of the first authors to explore the concept of wormholes, which we, you would later see in Interstellar. When, and in the movie Interstellar, a lot of people think that that's sort of like the modern version of what was 2001 back in the late 60s. I would agree. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Moving into the discussion about A Song for a New Day, I would consider A Song for a New Day to be on the softer end of science fiction. Do you agree with that? Um, you know what? I would have 100% agreed with that in 2018. Mm. Okay, okay. <laughs> continue. continue. Please continue. <laughs> unfortunately, because of current situations, uh, I believe that it's it moved from the realm of soft science fiction into more a realm of a harder view. Into I the realm of reality. Into the realm of reality, right? Yeah, yeah. I do believe that it it takes some concepts and runs with them a little too far. But the whole point is that you run those concepts so far so that you can avoid the trouble in the future. 1984 obviously comes into mind. Would you, you know, consider 1984 to be science fiction? If I lived in Britain, no. <laughs> okay. If I lived in Europe, no, because there's a CCTV camera on every corner mm. and in every shop. And then even though they're a free nation, and they are, there's very little that doesn't get seen by somebody. For those just tuning in, we're reviewing A Song for a New Day. It was the 2020 Nebula Award winner by author Sarah Pinksker. And if you've listened to the beginning of this episode, what Joe was alluding to in terms of this book was fiction in 2018 and then in 2020 is now reality. It's a story about two young girls. They're coming of age before and directly after right. a global pandemic, which has necessitated 100% social distancing. And their coming of age also parallels their growing into themselves as musicians and as artists and using their passion for music and art as a way to bring back human connection. This was published a month before COVID-19 showed up in the United <laughs> States, yeah. which is absolutely amazing. It, it won the Nebula Award in early 2020. So we were already in the midst of COVID-19 and the pandemic when it was given this award. Now, whether or not that was what tipped it to that award, only the judges know that. 
But it's kind of funny. I mean, when I read it, and it's, you know, the reality is, like I said earlier in the show, I mean, Joe and I are both males. We're kind of on the outside of some of the themes that were in this text looking in. Um, right. Uh, we both love music, and we both came of age like any other human being. But this was definitely written from a feminine perspective. And 100%. Yeah. 100%. And it, and it was well written. It was it was good. Yes. It was good prose. It, it, it Even though I, I struggled to relate to the characters and, and being able to put myself into their position, I, I could still, just like Joe was talking about reading Pride and Prejudice earlier, I could, under, I could just appreciate good writing. I, I did not read any of the other Nebula Award winners at the time. But I would consider this story to have pretty lucid prose. It was understandable on exactly what was going on. You know, I have different tastes in conflicts and resolutions within science fiction, but I'm also not a professional novelist. You know, I, I could not have written a better book myself, to be completely frank. Um, but, but I, you know, I, I wondered, again, pre-pandemic, and I, I wondered how much of the, the whole concept of the pandemic that was affecting the characters, how much that was a social metaphor for society. You, know, for yeah. a, you understand what I'm saying? For a woman's place yeah. in society. And I, I agree 100%. That that's, that's where... I mean, you're you're creating a class of leper. Absolutely. And At, yeah. that was the idea I got from it from the start because everybody has marks and it really came down to whether or not they were visible. The marks, certain social powers that decide who gets to interact and where. Pinsker created the pandemic, which was based in science. And, and it's kind of amazing that literally everything, all the predictions that she made two years ago now about what a pandemic would look and feel like emotionally, not just scientifically, but just emotionally, what the experience of being locked down for months and years on end would feel like was prophetic, to say the least. Yeah. If I'd have read this in October or, or November of 2019, I'd be like, no way is everything. It could never be like this. Right. Just like if I had read The Journey to the Moon in the late 19th century, right. I would have been like, it could never happen. Yes. Or um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea summaries, oh, it could never happen. Just didn't have the uh, ability or the to, to have a frame of reference for it is what we didn't have. It was an interesting read from the character's perspective for me because a lot of what I deal with in my job, running my business, I actually do a lot of things where I support the female side of a sport that I love. Hmm. I put my money where my mouth is and I actually pay to sponsor the racers who are young and are female. Mm -hmm. mostly because show me a guy who doesn't want to go out there and race and then show me a woman who's better yeah. in the field. And it's hard to find, but when you find them, they're almost always genuine and much more gun ho than the guys are to the point that it'll scare you. Like reflected uh, in the passion of the musicians within the book. You know, they're trying to make them make their way in this very right. sort of masculine controlled world and their, com their, their commitment to their art and to their profession yeah. never stops. The stuff that I see and the reason I give back to those areas is because I see that it takes more guts on their end than it does on a male end. On a male end, you wouldn't have any pushback. You wouldn't have any bodies kind of standing in your way other than maybe your mom saying, please, God, don't do it. But whenever you see these ladies go out there and, and compete and not only compete, but do well, it's important to recognize the struggle they may have had along the way. 
And just thinking off the top of my head, and, and again, I relate to this because this is in an industry that I love, is uh, we have, you know, a, a drag racing female, uh, Angel Sampe, that goes out and dominates for Harley Davidson up until very recently. You're talking motorcycle drag racing. Motorcycle drag racing, pro stock. So okay. this is the the big boys. And then we have a young lady who's climbing the ranks up in Pennsylvania named Kayla Yakov. She's 13 years old and she's outpacing guys who are my age mm. on the track, on the mm. road race track. And then we have a female racer who's married to a four-time AMA superbike champ, Josh Hayes, Melissa Paris. She goes out and not only did she, she kind of has her own race team and, of which her husband as an employee, hmm. but that she goes out and competes on the super stock level. And then when she couldn't find time to do that and needed to scrape together time and, and experience, she went out and crew chiefed for a super stock champion. So her first time out, she was the mechanic on a super stock championship team. I mean, that kind of success while being male seems like, well, you were in the right place at the right time, knowing that they've also busted their butts to get there provides a different perspective. This is almost mirrored in what I'm reading because both of them overcome social anxiety yeah. and parental control, yeah. some more severe than others, but equal in the same, yeah. to break out of what they're doing. One does it within the system and one does it outside the system yeah and they both had the same goals and i think that's kind of an interesting way of looking at how the book broke down and they both had to build the connections like they had to build the network you know they had to go out into the world and find those like-minded people and within the book it's the musicians right they understood that we have to maintain some human connection under this lockdown and they went through all of this arduous work to be able to build these networks of people and and one thing this was the first book i science fiction book i ever read to deal with virtual reality really that, yeah and, that, and maybe you can you can kind of give me some some other good books on it but this and i'm gonna i got a commentary on that that I, I i wondered as i read through this because this was obviously written for people who are coming of age right now i felt that way it, it almost had a it kind of leaned sort of young adult fiction right yeah and not all of us had the internet in our homes in the late 90s in early 2000s it was at that point you know, you could find it at a computer lab at a library but it was still somewhat luxury Every home in the world has the internet now, just like they have a telephone. Right. But or some have the internet and no telephone. But some have the internet and no telephone. But yeah. I wondered how much, before they learn to meet in person and be able to coordinate concert, because it culminates in the idea of, of building bands and concerts clandestinely. And at the top of the pandemic, there's a security lockdown that has to do with terrorism and civil unrest, which directly affects everything we've seen in the last week and a half of American <laughs> history. So the whole book is coming true right before our very eyes is what this, this whole episode comes down to. I think the, the response that people have is different because I think that as a human society, I think uh, we have different responses but i also think that again you show the worst case scenario so that we keep fighting yeah yeah early in the novel they went to concerts but they did them they, they called them their hoodies which was the virtual reality hoods right and i i haven't been a gamer since sega genesis back in the 90s i'm gonna go ahead and date myself <laughs> yeah um, but i guess now as virtual reality is a big part of like every respectable gaming franchise does game offerings in virtual reality well, I, I think that the, the gaming aspect of it, the virtual reality is, is in its infancy still. Okay. Uh, I think that the idea of a connected community that goes online 
Yeah. And that you may game with somebody for years and never see them. Yeah. In reality is the norm today. And I felt that metaphor when they were talking about the virtual reality aspect of this, where, you know, it started out and these, these women were using virtual reality to first have virtual concerts. Right. And they kept building on that to be able to meet in person for the first time, which when it happened, especially for the character of Rosemary, it was shocking to her that she had been, she had been so conditioned to quarantine that she didn't understand what it felt like to be near people again. Again, pre-pandemic fiction that we're talking about. Right. And I, I wondered how much of that was the anonymity that internet culture and online culture is already building into society in general. We can have all this online contact, digital contact with each other. And like you're saying within the gaming community, mm-hmm. you've got people who have competed in gaming at some of the highest levels and they'll never meet each other in person. They've just seen pictures of each other and heard each other's voices. Yes. I think that's a dangerous theme, but that's just because probably of how we grew up. We were the last generation to play outside, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and as you said in your bio, I mean, you're you're raising a child right now that's growing up in a world where playing outside is very different than it was when we were growing up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the outside was where you had all the fun, and it was nothing to take off on your bike for hours until dark, and then you just showed up for dinner. Yep. That was absolutely nothing yep. to have happened. If my son did that today, it, it wouldn't be the same. Yeah. And I feel bad that that's the case, but I also feel like there is a chance for him to experience more than I can experience at the age of 12. I think you kind of drew a, a line there. I don't know what your childhood was like, and uh, I, I feel like I kind of get an idea about the internet, is that uh, my dad was very progressive when it came to having internet and making sure it was connected. I mean, it was the minute we had internet in our community, we had it. Hmm. And by that point, I was back in Kentucky, and it took a while to get online. But once we were online, we have never been offline. And I yeah. can remember the day, and it was 1994 in February, when and we connected our Packard Bell computer to the internet for the very first time. And, you know, we went to things like web crawler way before Yahoo, way before. I mean, we're not even close to Google. And you had to know where to go to see things. And the only way to talk to people was through a, a chat called IRC. Being able to talk to somebody that was literally across the country was so unusual that I was enthralled by it. And I can honestly say that I would rather have a utility cut off at my house, such as electricity, than have my internet taken away. Mm. And that's a heavy hitter. That's a heavy, heavy hitter. And yeah. I believed uh, back in the day, and this is naivety speaking, that once you have access to information on the internet, there is no excuse for ignorance anymore. Yeah, but that's more I have been proved immeasurably wrong. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can understand what you just said in the sense like, okay, you know, we've got online communication. What we assume is all of the knowledge available to humanity at our fingertips at a Google search. Yeah. What, what we've seen, however, I'm also going to bring up another point about what you said about in terms of the necessity of the internet. But what we've gotten into is now the internet has become a tool for everyone just find their own little knowledge community and just to reinforce anything that they want to believe. You know, right. If somebody denies it, they can just keep keep searching for an online community that will affirm it and look at the rise of the flat earth society yeah and that whole movement which has really only come out in the last couple of years 
And I think the internet has turned into a place of what is called comfort for yourself. And I think I had a unique experience because my father published papers for 25, 30 years. And one thing that I learned from that is that the news, well, number one, the universe has no obligation to make sense to you. (laughs) And number two is that you have an obligation to seek the facts. Yeah. You cannot take something at face value. And if you do without doing your legwork, you are a fool. And that was a tough pill to swallow, but... It has paid massive dividends in today's society. When you learn these lessons when you're 15 and 16 and the internet is not really a thing and to find facts, you have to go to the library and you have to look up a microfish and understand and, you know, and the encyclopedia only goes so far. Yeah. Today, it's so easy to confirm or deny something just by spending time looking at other resources Mm -hmm. that are free. And I think that a lot of what this text gives us shows the dangers of not doing that. And one thing about the the power, and this could be a whole subject of science fiction in general, related to the internet, related to all this new technology and the the communication that we have. This episode is not broadcast on this day, but it's being recorded on January 10th, 2021. We're less than about 24 hours out from the president of the United States, and this is not a political show, and this is not a political concept, this is an historical fact, has been completely deplatformed from basically all of his social media, Correct. Uh, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. President Trump could hold press conferences all that he wants on the TV networks right now, and they would all stop what they're doing to listen to his press conferences. But the fact that he was deplatformed from the internet itself is being considered by some within society. These were private companies that did this, but it is being considered by some within society as at best, you know, big brother, you know, some of those concepts from like Fahrenheit 451 or, or 1984, or at worst, and this goes back to what Joe was saying about what utility would I want to have canceled within my own home. It's being considered as though President Trump was executed because, I mean, his, his, his social media persona was basically made to disappear. Right. And that itself shows the power, like we talk about soft science fiction, look at how much just a basic piece of digital technology and software is affecting tens of mil- hundreds of millions of Americans and, and how they relate to their own country at this point. And that's, that's both simultaneously terrifying, number one, and, but also fascinating. I, for one, feel that there is a warning that can go with that. But I also think that we need to look at the platforms that avail themselves to this as the trouble back in the day is, is what news platform do you listen to? You don't go to the weekly world news and get your news, okay? Yeah. You go to AP, you go to Reuters, you even have some BBC in there. You pull from two or three different, and then you find the one that's the most objective that you feel, and then you publish that. And anybody that wants to talk about it outside of that, that's what the editorials are for. Being deplatformed, I believe, is a problem that we will have to deal with going forward. But I also believe that there were many, many opportunities to which anyone could have made a way to secure that platform to be open. Hmm. We have protected free speech in this country. And, you know, newspaper guy, I 100% believe in that. But what people ignore is that there is speech that isn't covered under free speech. 
Yeah, and this is one thing about internet technology. People can cry fire in a crowded theater to to use old Supreme Court languages. You know, what are some of Absolutely. the what are some of the restrictions on the First Amendment in the United States for those people who are outside the United States listening to the show? And we do have some listeners in Europe and in India. You know, we have the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, which is the primary amendment, which the freedom of speech and expression and freedom of the press. However, there are certain pieces of jurisprudence that are around that in the sense like you cannot incite riots and violence. You cannot incite panic with free speech. And it, the theme was always you cannot go into a crowded theater and scream fire as though the building's on fire and in the resultant stampede if there was no fire that speech is not protected you will be held criminally liable for the damages that were done or deaths that occurred or because of the way that you used your right to free speech what we're seeing within American politics in the last 10 or 15 days, well, actually the last six weeks in particular, accusations are being made about the integrity of electoral processes at both the state and the national levels. And this has now manifests itself in riots and uprisings. There's no other way. Pro- protests steering into riots that are costing people their lives, Capitol building being stormed. And it's all centered around a piece of technology at the end of the day, which is fascinating. Like it's Yes. The technology itself, which is basically decades old, is fundamentally pushing the bounds of a political document that's about 250 years old. Right. You know, which is, it's just amazing. Can you imagine which, what? Which one's going to give? Yeah. Which, yeah. One, which one's, which one's going to hold up? And, you know, I have my bets on somewhere, but I think we're experiencing the growing pains of what will become the foundation of a new way of handling digital expression. Well, I mean, these are not new within American history. I'm going to, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but when steamboats, like there's a famous Supreme Court case of Marbury versus Madison, and that's what started off the whole concept of interstate commerce. A piece of new technology, the steamboat, which was based in scientific advancement, fundamentally altered the economic landscape of the United United States, where the Supreme Court had to get involved to be able to arbitrate the speed that, at that point, goods and services were being transferred across state lines. That later built foundations for monopolies and antitrust and just the power of industry in general. Communication technology in the United States is, you're right, we're going moving into the growing pains of, okay, what's the extent of regulation that we're going to have to build around this piece of technology as it alters the Constitution itself? Right. And the funny thing is, is that in the book that, that we're talking about, you know, they have um, laws against anti-congregation, against people gathering. And it's not just a suggestion. It's a fact yeah. that you can't congregate with. And they weren't specific as to how many people. Yeah. But the idea that I couldn't congregate after I go and get my vaccine is painful. Hmm. There are people that I want to see that I can't because of what's happening. Mm-hmm. We've got friends, you know, you know, the fellows I used to hang out with. I mean, I have a standing mark to meet with these guys after all this stuff is kind of calmed down to sit down and have a meal with them. Yeah. Because to me, that's how you share fellowship with your friends is you break to sit bread. down and have a meal yeah. with somebody. You break bread with them. Yeah. And I believe that that would be important. And the idea that a society could continue in the manner that this book describes, I find to be a little outside the realm of possibility for me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's a nice push. Like I keep saying, this is the push that you have to have uh, for a science fiction book to be able to push the ideas of society forward or ward off against things that could happen. Yeah, and we're going to tie this up in a minute. But one of the, would you consider this to be a dystopian 
Oh, absolutely. Okay, yeah, the whole concept of dystopia. And for those for those listening that don't know what that term means, historically within literature, there's the concept of the utopia, best represented by it was a 16th century a lawyer named Thomas More, English lawyer. And he created the idea of what's the ideal society. Some people could look at Plato's Republic and think that that was kind of utopian in nature. And it's a, a society which has basically solved all of its problems in the perfect world. The dystopia is the complete opposite. It's a world where everything has gone wrong and all paths lead to failure. And all the characters or the actors within those worlds are coping with the failure of all those systems. Utopias are fundamentally speculative and people understand it could never happen. Probably it only exists within the realm of speculation. Dystopias, going back to The Time Machine by Jules Verne, are fundamentally prophetic in nature. The history has played that out. Every dystopian novel that was ever written, in some way, shape, or form, the conditions within it came true. Right. And this novel, uh, Song for a New Day, was absolutely no exception at all. It came true almost a month after this thing was published. Yeah, it may be something that when it was written, I don't know what her headspace was like, but certainly at the time that some of this was being edited, the Chinese government and the people were certainly dealing with it. Oh, absolutely. But the fact that you knew it was on the editor's desk when this was happening. Yeah. It's pretty wild, and I would love to know what caused her to want to use this subject. In terms of like what paper or what what was she was exposed to that decided for the, to use the whole concept of a global pandemic? Yes, as a yeah. as a literary, but absolutely, yeah, yeah, that'd be a good. I'll find that out. I'll, I'll do some research on that. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Well, actually, we'll wrap this up with one last question, Joe, and that's I think we've kind of done this in some of the answers to our some of the discussion we've already had. But what are your projections for the future of science fiction? And let's just go for the next decade in terms of like you've said before, science fiction explains some things in the world around us in present, tries to educate the reader on the way that science is interacting with society as we see it, but also moving society forward and trying to solve some of the problems of the future, or at least head them off, or at least prophesizes, okay, we have to be ready because this could potentially happen based on parameters that we see around us today. Let's just go for the next decade. Some of the things that you think are going to be dealt with within science fiction. Well, I think that what we'll see, and this is just an easy layup on this one, is the idea of identity. And I don't really want to prescribe it to either gender or otherwise, but it, the idea of what an identity is will probably be explored. It's been explored a couple times already, but I got a feeling that it'll, like this novel, it'll be explored in a much deeper tone because there was two characters themselves, one of which has an identity one way and the other has an identity going the other. Yeah. Um, one is, knows who they are and the other one is just finding things out. I think that that's probably where the next four or five years will go. I think that we're going to be looking at less digital. I think we're probably going to go back to more of an exploratory realm. I feel that the ideas of getting out of our own earth space that will become very popular again because it already is. Yeah. yeah, I think when the boots hit the ground on the Martian soil, oh, yeah, yeah. it will change the way people perceive what is possible. And I think that that'll probably open up a whole different discussion of, of being homesick. What's it like to leave your planet? Yeah. And there's been discussions about that, but not into the point of what's it like to leave an identity behind? Do you think that you'll see uh, a Martian mission within your, your and my lifetime? Yes, absolutely. 
Yeah, and then what happens when the first human being is born on Mars? Yes. They're a Martian, the first Martian. Yeah, I mean, there are movies and books that explore this right now. You know, the Expanse series really kind of hits that pretty hard. And I think that's a really interesting idea because before we always thought, well, Earth versus Mars or colony, but they have three different factions that they're dealing with. They have Mm. the outer colonies, they have the Mars colonies, and then they have the Earth colonies. Mm. And, you know, and all that does is really replicate in the Star Wars universe, the core systems, the mid-rim, and then the outer rim. So we're all looking at the same thing, the haves and have-nots. And lastly, do you think public health, we're looking at uh, the year 2020, which just left us about 10 days ago. I prophesize that the issues of public health and immunology and virology and pandemics will permeate science fiction for a while. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. I'm yeah, waiting I, for that. <laughs> well, I mean, you had it in Stephen King, The Stand. Yeah. And you know something? I think Stephen King leans into science fiction at times. I understand he's, he's oh, whore. They, they yes. write him off as whore, but I would definitely consider some of Stephen King to be science fiction. If you finished It, It is not... I mean, it's a pretty horrific novel in a lot of ways, but it is not purely based on just horror. It's based on this dimensional demon and how it affects the humans around it for centuries. Mm. And to me, I was like, you talk about the blend of science fiction and fantasy. What was more interesting to me was what this entity is, this it. Mm and how it has affected people for centuries in this one town. And I 100% agree with your assessment. That Stephen King should be considered a science fiction author on top of horror and on top of thrillers and suspense. Yes, absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the book that Joe and I talk about today is A Song for a New Day by Sarah Pinsker. It was published in 2019 and won the 2020 Nebula Award, which is awarded to currently working science fiction authors. We've got the Hugo Awards that are coming up, which is one of the other prestigious science fiction awards, and maybe we'll check in with Joe when that comes out. Joe, always a pleasure talking to you. Joe has been a supporter of Read Succeed from the very beginning. He's given me great assistance with some of the graphic design, some of the web design. Read and Succeed would not exist. This show that everyone's enjoyed for the last year, which is going in all these great directions, it would have never happened without Joe's experience. So not only do I want to thank you for coming to the show today, Joe, I want to thank you for all the support that you've given. Not just when the show launched, but you know all the conversations that we had leading up to it. And I hope that this is not the last time that we get to hear you on the show. This has been something that we've talked about since before you started this. And I believe that, look, man, I'm in the business of making people's dreams happen. I started my business because there are people out there who don't have graphic design skills that I have. And I'm not the greatest in the world, but I certainly can help people out. And I believe that people obtaining what they want to in life is probably the most precious thing that we have in this world. And the fact that you told me that you've been doing this a year, is that right? I've been doing it a year, yep. A year. Blows me away, and I can't be happier. Mr. Joe Hardwick, Gearhead Design Graphics. You can learn more about Joe and GHD Graphics at ghdgraphics.com. That's it for Episode 16 of Read and Succeed. Join us next episode for Black History Month, reviewing The Dead or Arising, The Life of Malcolm X by late African-American journalist Les Payne. It's going to be a great 2021 season. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Thanks for listening. Black History Month.